Well, as you may have heard in the news in Ontario, paid sick leave is coming in. It is temporary. That was one of the questions asked about this program and why it is set to expire in September. Uh, we certainly had uh, lots of advice uh, from uh, the medical uh, community. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, we've uh, heard uh, loud and clear. That was uh, Minister of Labour in Ontario, Monty McNaughton. A lot of people have been asking in this province, asking the Premier, uh, the Minister in charge, why BC has not also introduced this type of paid sick leave. But let's bring in Annie Dormuth, Provincial Affairs Director for Alberta with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks so much for being with us again. Oh, of course. Anytime. Uh, what is uh, the Federation's thought on this or thoughts on this as far as uh, provinces, whether it's provincial or a federal program, having uh, kind of some kind of standard paid sick leave? Well, definitely, of course, we do understand that Ontario has now implemented this and that also the B.C. government might also look at, might be looking at introducing something similar we do, first of all, recommend that the federal government uh, improves the current COVID-19 sick, sick benefit and gets that funding out to employers and sorry employees quicker than the current time frame. However, if provinces are going to go to this model, um, we do recommend that they look at what Ontario has done and keep in you know keep in mind some key principles to this. And first of all that this is not employer paid and that small businesses do not foot the bill for this. And also that this is a temporary measure that works alongside the current federal COVID-19 sickness benefit. Um, We saw in Ontario that they kind of check off both of those two things of it being first uh, paid by the government um, and as well as uh, basically ending at the same time that the federal program ends. And also, you know, if we are going to be going to this model and uh, and that even in Ontario, we are looking at this, that there also must be a quick reimbursement to businesses um, under the Ontario model. Um, employers basically pay for it and then are reimbursed by the government. And that turnaround for reimbursement also needs to happen quickly. Uh, That was one of the things when looking at this, uh, like you said, so uh, a person could take, say, three sick days, uh, their employer required to pay them uh, up to $200 a day. Uh, But what kind of a turnaround would there need to be, do you think? Because you could see how it could quickly escalate if an employer, say, has five employees or or a few employees, depending on, on, on the number that they have in total, how that could add up. Well, and that's definitely the case in Ontario. Um, For example, the Ontario grant program has been, you know, long time delays on getting that funding rolled out to small businesses. And it needs to be in a matter of days that employers are reimbursed for this program. Uh, Still a little bit unclear on how the provincial government in Ontario tends to reimburse employers, but we are strongly calling on them to make sure that reimbursement happens in a matter of days. Uh, do you think it's is it enough to give an employer to bring this in for three paid sick days so when we're talking about uh, particularly because of the pandemic we're talking about people who in some cases may have to isolate may have to be off work for for more than three days do you think it goes far enough well that's yet to kind of be seen in that case i mean you know as these programs are looked at um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, as it works alongside with, with the federal, federal sickness benefit program, we do hope that it does provide um, employees um, just to ensure that they're not additionally penalized 
for basically doing their part to reduce the spread and, of course, stay home um, when sick. So we do hope that it does help in Ontario. Um, However, of course, that's yet to be seen, um, basically the benefits of allowing this, but hopefully it does work. Uh, We're talking about this because of the pandemic and because there have been renewed calls for this, uh, given uh, what we're dealing with. Uh, Do you think, though, going forward on the other side of this, is it also a way because, I mean, when people come to work sick, whether it's a cold or the flu, there is always the potential of spread, especially in businesses where people work close together. Uh, Could this be a benefit moving forward for any type of sickness in that it will keep workforces, it will keep employees less exposed and, and healthy? Well, as we, you know, in the immediate future right now and kind of the ongoing discussion now, it's very important that any type of these programs are temporary and do take into the into account the current state of small businesses. Definitely any type of additional permanent program um, once the, maybe the pandemic um, has subsided and we're back to, you know, a pathway of recovery, that this, you know, becomes a broader discussion and will definitely need to be looked at with great consultation with business owners. And again, also take into consideration the state of small businesses. And how so in the, in the state of recovering uh, from the pandemic? Yeah, exactly. You know, small businesses do report, you know, that it will take a long time for them to recover. Um, So it must, you know, it needs to be done with a lot of consultation and a lot of thought. And again, just take into account, you know, take into account what is the state of small businesses at that time. But definitely any programs now, you know, to deal with the ongoing pandemic, it needs to be looked at very at a temporary measure. And then if there are discussions, you know, down the road about, you know, a possible permanent discussion, a permanent program, that there is a heavy consultation with business owners and, of course, the larger business community. Right, because is it your concern or, or that we could be, because we're talking about this in a pandemic and it's so the employer pays it and, and is reimbursed, uh, is the concern being we could be looking at a shift down the road if it does become something permanent, but it would be the cost that would be incurred by the business owner? That's exactly, you know, that's exactly the kind of concern that we would have down the road. Again, you know, when we get to that point or those discussions um, down the road, um, again, we need to have, you know, a very thorough consultation with business owners and, and, and again, take into, the, into account um, the state of small businesses at that time. Uh, Do you think, too, it it kind of shines a light on this or at least gets the conversation going in that we can go all the way from a small business where there are no paid sick days and a business owner saying that that there's just no way to afford that and talking about it under normal circumstances, not in the throes of a pandemic, uh, all the way to certain government agencies and government jobs and such where not only do you get quite a large amount of sick days, uh, but you're also in a position where you can bank those sick days and, and keep them uh, for uh, a later time, taking them in one in uh, a bigger kind of chunk of time. It, it does seem, are we talking more, do you think, about kind of the wide range of what's out there? Yeah, and of course, you know, we do recognize that there are certain provinces that actually have it. I believe it's two days in Quebec, and I think, you know, one of the Atlantic provinces is one or two days as well. So definitely there are, you know, other provinces that do have it um, for, you know, do it is mandatory for businesses to provide up to, you know, two to three sick days um, per year. And I think there are certain certain even requirements that an employee employee must have to work, you know, up to, you know, half a year or even a full year to even receive that benefit. So there are cases um, in other provinces where that is a mandatory policy from the government. 
And definitely as we get out of the pandemic um, and if this program ends and if the government decides to move to that direction, um, those are all conversations that we will have with them. And, you know, we, we strongly encourage them to reach out to, to our members and to small businesses to get their perspectives on any type of permanent program such as that. And I guess that shines or, or is part of the conversation as well when you mention that. And there's been some talk about the fact that there are already uh, those requirements in Quebec. And it's not as though Quebec has come out of uh, this pandemic unscathed. In fact, they've seen some of, of the worst scenarios. And that's and that's exactly it. You know, all across the province, provinces, you know, no small business has gone unscathed about this. And again, as we come out of the pandemic and if we are in a position, if the government does decide to go to a permanent measure such as the one in Quebec or even um, the one, I, again, I can't remember which Atlantic province does have it, but there is one. Um, we, again, just strongly call on the government to definitely, you know, have that very in-depth consultation with business owners. And, of course, the CFIB would be gladly to partake in any of those conversations. All right. To Annie Dormuth, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Annie Dormuth is the Provincial Affairs Director for Alberta with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Well, a new study shows something that we probably all really already know or maybe aren't going to be surprised by this. This was a new agri-food analytics lab study and it takes a look at what we have been eating during the pandemic and how many of us have been stress eating or just turning to the refrigerator because we're stressed out for certain reasons and having that maybe extra snack is a good thing. Uh, 77% of Canadians responded saying that they are under more stress as a result of the pandemic. Not a huge surprise there. And more than half, 51.4% say yes, they are finding comfort in food. Now, of the 42, say, percent of Canadians who say they've gained weight, about 37% say it's an increase of about 6 to 10 pounds since last spring. So should we be worried about uh, the fact that three in five Canadians, according to this, say they have, in fact, packed on a few uh, undesired pandemic pounds? Let's bring in Alyssa Bowman, a holistic nutritionist with Nourished.ca. Thanks so much for being with us. No, thanks, Jill, for having me. I think people are terming that the COVID-15 is yes. what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. Yes, even if it's not quite 15, it's 15. got that, that ring to it. So are you surprised at all that given the stress and what we're dealing with, uh, people have been packing on a bit of extra weight? No, not in the slightest. It makes uh, total sense because so many people reach for food you know, for even before the pandemic, right, to stress release, um, emotional eating, just trying to find some pleasure when there's not that much pleasure to be had. So no, I'm not surprised in the least amount. I'm, I'm worried, though. And I think there's room for concern, because with, with all that is continuing to go on, you know, six pounds here, six pounds there, it does start to add up. And, you know, the unwanted weight gain does lead to other types of, of problems, health problems. Uh, right, because we're talking about something too, even though we're now seeing people getting vaccinated and uh, hopefully getting to some place where we're getting to the other side of this. Uh, the question is, do we magically lose the six to 10 pounds or the COVID-15? And that, uh, unfortunately, I'm guessing doesn't happen right away. Well, that's interesting. It's an interesting point because it really comes down to your habits. So we've been, I mean, we've made our COVID habits here because we're over a year now. 
so what are your habits? So I always like to ask my clients, you know, what, what are your habits that, that form what you do every single day? So if we're stressed every single day and we're reaching for whatever that may be, the, the pizza, the chips, whatever that is for you, um, and you're doing that every day, and we've been in this pandemic for over a year, you're doing that for over 365 days almost to get that sense of, of relief and recovery and some type of pleasure. So it's about reexamining our habits and how can we begin to figure out what's, what's serving us and what's not serving us. And, and just for the record, there's absolutely you know, nothing wrong with chips and nothing wrong with pizza and nothing wrong with whatever it is that you love to eat it, as long as, as you're eating it with intention and as long as you're eating it um, and enjoying it. And it's not just, you know, you're just not, you know, stuffing it, you know, down your, down your face and your, into your face to stuff down the emotions that you feel. Just, I just want to make that clear because there's no, there's no bad foods. There's no shame in eating the foods that we love as long as we're enjoying them. Right. And we need a certain amount of calories and the number of calories to get through the day and to maintain and to stay healthy. But I guess that's the question is if it's, say, nine o'clock at night and maybe you're stressed about the day you've had or the day ahead and you're going searching out for food, it's, it's probably not because you're hungry. It's, it's the majority of the time. And I'm surprised that they didn't talk about this in the studies that it's usually not when you're hungry because there are studies out there that says that when you actually are hungry, you choose healthier foods if they're on hand. So it's, it's the foods that we kind of, you know, think are, are those guilty pleasures that we choose to eat for pleasure. So I like to ask, you know, I like to ask my clients, what, what are the habits and, and why, why are you doing this? And, and the big question is to really help people, you know, going through this and going through the, eating eating for stress is is to just stop for a minute and stop before you reach for I'm just going to say the chips again reach for before you stop and 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 finish a bag of chips why don't you stop for a minute and take a couple deep breaths and tune in and turn into your body and and listen to what it's actually saying and if you do that and you know this becomes a habit and this is a practice and it does take you know a daily intention to do it this way but it but once you have it, it's very interesting to see how it changes your eating patterns and changes the way you eat. Because if you do do this and you ask the question of, you know, how is this going to make me feel after? Is this, is this really what I want to be doing? Because, you know, when you do finish the bag of chips, you usually feel even worse, right? <laughs> that has been known to happen, yes. <laughs> so now we have a double, we're stressed about the pandemic and whatever the uncertainty is that lies in our lives. And now we are, you know, putting more stress upon on that because, you know, we feel like, you know, we're shameful that we just ate an entire bag. So now, it, now it's just worse. So now we're, our body is, is in the fight or flight mode and we're just stressed and we're going to eat again. Yeah. So how do you, and kind of that, that's that point, right, where you're looking at it and you're thinking, oh, maybe I'll just have a few. And you're right. Sometimes then suddenly you look and think, oh, there, that bag is now empty. I didn't realize yes. that, uh, that I was having more than that. Uh, but, yes. but it is pretty easy to get caught up in the moment, especially if you've had a really stressful day. So, so besides taking a couple of breaths and that, I mean, do you, would you ever recommend uh, to somebody don't have that stuff in your house then as temptation? I have recommended that for sure, um, but restriction doesn't always work. So if you are, you know, especially now since grocery shopping, you have to do it a little bit more uh, organized, you know, don't buy it in the house and buy it when you want it. Buy it as a treat and be like, you know what, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have that bag of chips and I'm going to 
watch the movie or whatever it may be, but make it an intentional thing that you're going to, you're going to enjoy it because the thing is, is that when we're eating for stress or eating for um, comfort, we usually don't actually enjoy it. We're just, as I said before, you know, just quickly eating one after the other, not even noticing it, not even being mindful of it. So it really, it really does come down to just being more mindful and more observant of, of the habits that you keep in how you eat, when you eat, um, what you go for when you, you when you're in need of something. You know, another great thing is to drink a lot of water. And when you're feeling that urge, like I need something right now because I'm so stressed out, I'm so, um, you know, so, I'm so this, this is just I don't know how to deal with this. Have a glass of water. Again, take a couple breaths and say, okay, if I'm going to have this, I'm going to sit down and really enjoy it. What about people that would be in the position with looking at this? And again, uh, I'm guessing a lot of people will uh, be, uh, will, this will resonate with them that say, say you've gained eight pounds or 10 pounds and you're feeling really horrible about it. We tend to beat ourselves up over that mm-hmm. rather than think it's not the end of the world. And there, it's, you're, you have not gone over a cliff. It's not the end of the world. But right. how do you get past that kind of just feeling awful that you've let this happen? Well, this is this is a, a great question, and I, it's like the magic. The, if, if it's the magic bullet there, but I mean, having a little bit more kindness and a little bit more compassion towards yourself, treating yourself as if you would treat your own best friend, and talking yourself through it, like you will get through this. And if you wanted to set a goal and be like, you know what, really set that goal and bring that goal to the forefront, and make you know, if it is, if you if you if you're not feeling great about it. Make, you know, a daily walk a priority or making greens more part of your life, like eating more greens or bringing more whole foods into your life or, um, you know, having a sugar swap on hand. So if like cake is a thing that, you know, you think you've been eating a lot of or cookies or whatever that may be that that's, you know, adding a little bit of that extra weight, maybe swapping in something healthier instead. So there's lots of ways that we can be a little bit um, more intentional, a little bit kinder to ourselves. So you know, it's a hard time and we just all need to get through this. But when you start, you know, seeing the weight really add up, it makes you feel worse about yourself. So really bringing that compassion component into this, I think, is very important. And what advice do you give to people then that say it's easy to do that for a week or a week, or maybe two weeks, but then you kind of fall back into old habits? Well, that's interesting you say that because one of my big um, mottos that I know and I feel and I've helped so many people get through is that when you start to eat well, like when you really get on a roll and you've been eating well, and it's not a diet, like never that you're hungry or you're restricting calories or even restricting the foods that you love. But when you get on a roll and you're eating healthy, delicious, whole foods, you're never hungry and you're feeling the benefits. You know, you might be losing a little bit of weight. You might have more energy. Your skin might be, you know, glowing a bit more. Um, You want to continue it. So if you give it a week, um, no one's ever said, man, I don't feel good eating healthy. No one has ever told me that. I've only seen the opposite. And it's almost like a ripple effect. You want to continue to do it. And then when you do have that occasional piece of whatever it is, you really sit down and enjoy it. It's a complete change and complete tweak in your mindset of when you, what, how you look at food, how you look at, you know, um, calories in and calories out, and, and how you really start to reestablish and, and redefine um, this diet culture that we live in, because it's, it's not a healthy one. Uh, do you think it's good to keep a food journal, or does that help if you're keeping track of your calories? You know what? That's a great question. Um, 
some people, everybody's different. Some people really love that and they really love to look at what they're eating and what they're tracking. And other people, it stresses them out. So if you're that type of person that, you know, you need lists, you like lists, you like to be organized and you like, you know, to see what your intake is and your consumption is, then go for you. It's just, go for it. It's just, it's just another tool to help you um, get to that goal that you want. All right. And any other advice? So we're almost uh, done here, but any uh, other advice as far as if people are finding themselves, here we are, what, 14 months in, gained a bit of weight to unsure on, on what to do right now? I would, yes. My biggest advice is to really go, turn inward, take a moment and really examine your habits and see if they're working for you. Because Nine out of ten times, if you're eating late at night and you're eating mindlessly and you're stressed out, there's a lot of other things that contribute to your eating. So turn into your habits, tune into your habits and really ground down and try to find a little bit of um, a healthier habit that you can maybe substitute. So if you drink, easy, if you drink, you know, juice, maybe substitute it with soda water with lemon or regular water with lemon. If you usually sit and watch, you know, a show at night, maybe go for a walk and get some movement in. If you usually have three cups of coffee, maybe try two cups of coffee, you know, just really trying to hone in on your habits and seeing what, you know, may not serve you and how you can kind of insert a healthier fix. All right. Good advice. Uh, Alyssa Bowman, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That is Alyssa Bowman, holistic nutritionist with Nourished.ca. We are taking a look at something happening. Well, it happens in various communities in Metro Vancouver. Uh, But in North Vancouver, uh, some residents have been noticing a live bear trap. And it's on Braemar Road in North Vancouver. If you've been in that area, you've likely seen it. And joining us now to talk more about why there are concerns about this is Lucy Cadman, Executive Director of the Black Bear Society. Lucy, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, Is it early? I know we're almost into May. Is it early to see uh, what would clearly uh, be a sign of perhaps uh, human and bear interaction? Is it early to see these traps set up? Uh, It is quite early, although back in uh, 2019, a bear was killed again in North Vancouver uh, on April 20th. So we've had a very early start to the season. In fact, we had some activity over the winter period, which was due to residents across the North Shore leaving unnatural food sources available to bears. Uh, So if they can find those food sources, some bears will remain active uh, for longer periods over the winter. We certainly saw that. What we saw as well, that was at least 10 individual bears that were active across the North Shore in communities in mid-February. So we've been very busy from, uh, uh, you know, a very early start to the season, yes. Uh, So bears are waking up, they're hungry, they're going about their business. Uh, It's my understanding in this particular case in uh, North Vancouver, the the leading to the Braemar Road live bear trap, these uh, are bears or uh, a a bear that uh, there have been garbage cans routinely uh, broken into by a bear in that area. So what what goes through your mind when you hear, because we've had the warning so many times uh, specifically about garbage, what goes through your mind when you hear about that? Well, I was absolutely devastated uh, to find out from a resident that a bear trap had been set uh, in Braemar, which is a community where we've done extensive education. It's a hotspot area for wildlife activity, as are many communities across the North Shore. Uh, We really are trying to promote coexistence with these animals 
very sadly, many of the bears that denned uh, on the North Shore, as soon as they emerged from their dens, they went straight back to these communities where they found unnatural food sources. Uh, now, the North Shore Black Bear Society and the District of North Vancouver, who work incredibly hard uh, to share education and enforcement with the community, have let residents know that the district-issued lockable carts that we have here are not bear-proof. They are bear-resistant. So if a bear is accessing food from those carts on your property, it's your responsibility to take extra steps to secure that food from bears. What happens when a bear is killed or very, very rarely relocated uh, is it just leaves a space that another bear will soon fill. And we see that happening every single time a bear is removed from the community. And it's usually uh, that the, the, the bear is killed. Very, very sadly, we lost five bears here on the North Shore last year because they were finding food uh, in residential areas. Uh, we see that within days, another bear occupies that space. We're trying to stop this cycle of residents tempting bears into the community with garbage, food scraps, freezers and fridges and carports, bird feeders, pet food. The bear being killed for it. Not much enforcement being done, sadly, from the Conservation Officer Service through the Wildlife Act because they simply do not have the resources to attend to all the issues. And the District of North Vancouver last year, at the end of last year, uh, introduced a, a wildlife attractants bylaw. So they now can address uh, issues on properties. And uh, trust me that they are working very, very hard uh, to uh, get the education out to residents. And in those situations where residents are failing to act, they are enforcing uh, the wildlife attractants bylaw. So uh, it's just absolutely impossible to get to every single issue uh, on the North Shore, very sadly. And talking even about garbage cans, because there has been so much attention given to garbage cans, but it's an interesting point you make. Is it, are people uh, becoming, uh, that they think because they're locked cans, like you said, they're bear resistant, uh, that they're leaving them out longer, even though that too, in many cases, can lead to a fine? Absolutely. So what we saw when the carts were rolled out a few years ago, um, even though uh, the messaging was very clear that they are bear resistant, not bear proof, so many more people now store them outside of a garage or shed. Uh, so we're asking people if you have those options to store your garbage and your food scraps and recyclables in a secure area such as a garage or shed, please do that. Uh, the uh, less food that we have available for these animals, the less time they'll spend close to homes. But just given the nature of where we are, we will always see bears traveling through our communities. They're not just there for food. In fact, many of the bears that we see in residential areas or on our local popular trails are vulnerable bears. So females with cubs, juvenile bears, older bears, injured bears, they seek safety from dominant male bears by occupying areas closer to people. The dominant male bears typically live further up the mountain and are more active at night, which forces the vulnerable bears to be active during the daytime. So it's very, very normal for us to see bears in communities here. And very often uh, they're eating natural foods, which is, is the case for this bear in Braemar. There are two actually in the community. Uh, we've got evidence we've witnessed both of these bears eating lots of natural foods, uh, berries last summer and grasses and uh, dandelions now in the spring. But they're supplementing their natural diet with anything that we leave available to them. And that is costing them their lives.
So these two bears then, if uh, they were only eating those berries and they were in the neighborhood and eating uh, foraging for whatever they could find naturally, if they hadn't been uh, tempted by these garbage cans or hadn't been able to find anything that was human, that humans had left out, would they be able, do you think, to coexist? Absolutely. In fact, these bears have been showing us for a year or more uh, that they are coexisting in the community. No one has expressed to us that they felt uh, unsafe around these animals. Uh, in fact, uh, quite the opposite. People are letting us know that they've encountered them on many occasions. Uh, they're you know, reiterating what we say about these animals. They're calm and peaceful by nature. When they're in the community, their intention isn't to hurt people or our pets. Um, it's just to supplement their diet with anything that we might leave. And they're led by their noses. Um, so, and they're curious animals as well. And so, you know, some people here on the North Shore, we just live on wildlife corridors. We live in spaces where we might not have anything at all available for bears, but they still will pass through our properties. Uh, in fact, many of the reports that we receive in the early spring when bears are actually aren't focused on food, they're still uh, relying on the fat reserves that they built in the previous fall. They're typically looking to eat fresh spring greens, and so lots of grazing on lawns and in clear-cut areas. Uh, but, you know, walking past a bird feeder full of calories, uh, that's a temptation to a bear, very sadly. So in this case, like you said, it's uh, quite likely these bears will pay with their lives. So, so have yeah. you been told, or are, I know uh, conservation has been asked about this, uh, is there no other option at this point? The live trap is there. It, once it traps the bears, these bears will be destroyed? We've been told that it is one individual bear, um, an adult male bear that we did encounter in that community last summer. And um, we've been told that this bear has gone beyond the threshold of what is acceptable, meaning that they have accessed food on a regular basis. The Conservation Officer Service has told us that also because the bear is not afraid of people, um, that contributes to the bear being killed. We want people to understand that bears are not fearful. Um, they are um, very calm animals. Uh, they're not fearful of people. Uh, we don't want them to be fearful of people. We don't want people launching bear bangers in the community. Um, we don't want people acting aggressively towards these animals. But what we do want is people to set clear boundaries. So making sure there's no food outside of your home to bring the bear into the community. And if a bear does pass by your property, they're very intelligent animals. If you can get to a safe place like a deck or a window, you make eye contact and use a deep, firm tone in any language. They don't know English, but they recognize tone. They respond to tone of voice. And you tell that bear to move on and they listen. Now, they're very accustomed now to all the loud noises that people make. Uh, so air horns we're finding is not as effective, but your human dominance from that safe place is a really good way to set boundaries. And the people have been letting us know that they've done that and it has worked. Uh, we need to be consistent and persistent with those messages as well to these animals, making it clear every time that they go onto your property that they're not welcome and set the boundaries. The bear is, is very, very welcome to use the green spaces and the creeks and rivers that uh, go alongside our houses here on the North Shore but set boundaries on your property and they listen and they learn. That will save bears. All right. And an interesting point you make that not to make them fearful, uh, but just to make sure they know, uh, keep the distance. Absolutely. They try to avoid having close encounters with people anyway, but we're letting people know that daytime activity is normal and it's very normal for bears not to run away. Uh, they're not um, really responding to dogs. 
anymore. So people call all the time, the bear's not running away and my dogs are barking. That's a good thing. We don't want these animals to be uh, pressured or afraid by dogs and people because when we do have those close encounters, it will happen occasionally. Uh, We don't want the bear to feel defensive. Um, And so if you do have a close encounter, uh, you're going to stay nice and calm. You're going to talk to the bear in a calm voice, again, in any language, just that calm tone and back away nice and slowly. So using your body language and that calm tone to communicate to the bear that you are not a threat and you've given them lots of personal space and respect. And that's what we'd really like to see from the community. All right. Uh, Good reminder as we are still so early in the season. Uh, Lucy Cadman, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Lucy Cadman is the executive director of the Black Bear Society. All right, we've been talking about how much people have been missing concerts, have been missing big events, are certainly looking forward to the return of things like that. We've also seen some pretty uh, unique, some creative. You can't be pretty unique. You can be uh, pretty creative, though, when it comes to finding ways to get the arts to people, whether it's music or theater or many other things, comedy. Well, something called Music on Main is kicking off next month, and it's all about bringing a virtual concert series to your living room. And our show contributor, John Jang, has more on that. Good afternoon, Jill. Now, here's a refreshing story, because when's the last time you went and checked out a live music event? Yeah, I know, it's been a while for me as well. But look, next month, Listening Together by Music on Main is actually kicking off on May 14th, and we can finally start geeking out about bands and songs and, yes, concerts. Joining us to talk more about this is David Pay, the Artistic Director for Music on Main. David, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the name in itself is pretty self-explanatory, but I love this. Music on Main. And when's the last time any one of us could really get excited for live music, right? It's, it's been a little while. So tell us what Music on Main is all about and the fact that because it's a pandemic, uh, the virtual setting for this particular festival is kind of perfect. It is. You know, 15 years ago when I started Music on Main, we were on Main Street. It was a rising up-and-coming neighborhood. There was really cool stuff happening there, but not a lot of live music yet. And so we started to bring live music to Heritage Hall and to other venues, started moving around town. And at the core of Music on Main, ever since the beginning, is this idea that when we're all in a room together listening, we can find ways to connect with each other, with the artists, with ourselves. And that is what is at the core of everything Music on Main does. So during these strange times, as we're switching over to a virtual festival, We're still trying to make ways that artists and audiences can feel connected to each other through the music. So with this festival, we have performances that we've captured on video. And it's really, we work with such a beautiful video team as well. So they've done an extraordinary job capturing all that and a great sound engineer. But we also made a lot of interviews where we ask musicians, what makes you want to listen? What do you love most in an artist or in an audience? And we have conversations with the artists. And then the audience will have a chance to have a conversation with the artists after the performances during some artist chats as well. And the name of this particular program is called Listening Together, which it it feels so wholesome in a world that doesn't really feel wholesome, if you get my drift here, David. It seems like this is a a band-aid to some of the craziness we're seeing everywhere else. Well, whether it's a band-aid or, you know, an ointment, a salve that we can 
hit on some of our feelings right now. When you were talking about discovering that new band, discovering that new artist, the new sound, I think that when we take a moment to listen and to open ourselves up to new ideas, new people, and we actually just have that moment to sit down and open those ears, I think that that's when connections come and that's when understanding comes. And I think we learn more about ourselves when we put ourselves into a, a state of listening. We feel better because we can shut down everything else that's going on in our brain and just listen to what somebody else has to say, listen to the music that somebody else is sharing. And I think that somehow when we're doing that with new sounds and new artists, things we haven't heard before, it, it activates our brain in maybe a way that provides some sort of compassion for other people and also for ourselves. What was that process like for you trying to put this together and really experimenting with different musical genres and backgrounds that most people probably haven't had many experiences listening to and uh, using this as a platform to promote up-and-coming artists that don't often get a lot of radio time, for example? We can't cover every genre, but I, like most every person who loves music, I like a whole lot of different kinds of music. And my background is classical music. That's what I was trained in. But I love sort of weird new sounds. I love pop music. I love folk music. And when I'm choosing artists, the thing that I want the most is an artist who wants to communicate and to have that connection with the artist, with the audience. And so to have that connection with the audience is the main reason that I chose each of the musicians who's performing at Listening Together. Uh, there's a young violinist who graduated from Juilliard. There is an extraordinary cellist who's moved back here. But there's also a santur player who originally is from Tehran in Iran. Mm. Um, we, we have a duo called Dalava where there's a singer and an with an electric guitar. And it's not hardcore rock and roll. It's actually based on old Moravian, old Czech folk songs that the singer Julia Ulela's great-grandfather collected in you know, the border between Czech and Slovakia. And they take these old folk songs and they do new interpretations that make sense for them as a, a couple who's moved to the West Coast. It might be free, but I can't let you go without at least endorsing the idea of donating. Because as we know, uh, throughout the pandemic, the arts sector, all of it, has been struggling so much. And we haven't had opportunities to support our very talented musicians and artists across the country, but certainly around the world. So I encourage our listeners to go and check that out. It's Music on Main. David Pay, appreciate you giving us some time here today. I, I wish you and the entire team tremendous success with this next month. Uh, we'll be listening. We'll be watching. And again, that's May 14th to the 18th. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I can't wait to listen with you. All right. And thanks to our show contributor, John Jang, joining us with that. If people are looking to bring a little music into their homes and to at least feel like you're experiencing it with other people, even though it's really nothing like it is to be at a live music venue, just trying to fill those gaps and still be able to bring a little bit of beauty into people's homes.